0: Hello and welcome to Legacy on the Clock Tower. I'm your host, Andrew. Today I'm going to be joined by.
1: Um, hi, this is Madeline. And Return of the Horrible Goose, Navian.
0: We're going to be talking about the Blood on the Clock Tower Legacy campaign that has been happening on the Pandemonium Institute's Twitch channel. If you haven't been following along and this is your first episode, you may want to go back and listen to the previous ones because we're in the thick of it now. Uh, We're getting towards the end and there's been a lot that's happened. But for those of you who have been listening, Madeline, new voice to the podcast. Madeline, of course, has been playing along on the Twitch streams through the whole campaign. Excited to have you join us. And as Navian mentioned, returning to the podcast, one of our playtesters, to give us perspective of how things went during the playtest as we talk about last Sunday's Twitch stream game. I'm gonna go ahead and jump into some game mechanics of things that were introduced as a part of the most recent game. This game introduced a war deck, which was a new mechanic for the Legacy campaign. Uh, The deck started with a single version of all of the standard playing cards, so like one suit basically ace through two, or I guess you'd say uh, king through ace. In any case, one of every card, each of those cards would have a different effect that when it was drawn. At the end of every day, a card would be drawn and we would just resolve the effect. So to give a brief summary of them, uh, the ace gives a benefit to the players of the game. A king and a queen have a bad effect that can happen. The jack just draws another card, 10, nine, and eight, adds a face card to the deck, seven shuffles the deck, six, five, four, three, adds a 10, nine, eight, or seven to the deck, a two adds an ace. If all of that's confusing, don't worry about it. As you're watching the stream, It it doesn't necessarily matter to know uh, what all of that does. It's on screen, so you don't have to have that memorized. It's an effect that can affect the game. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go through the impact that it had on the game that we played. For this game also, we had four new players that were added to this game as the apprentice, which is a traveler. All of these players were relatively new to the game. So they were each given the angel ability, which is a fabled that exists in the base game Flood on the Clock Tower. Angel is the fabled role that uh, says the player who is most responsible for your death something bad may happen to them, which discourages you from getting the protected player executed or killed we also had a modified version of the buddhist the buddhist is a fabled character that exists in the regular game with blood on the clock tower Uh, it was modified slightly so the effect of the buddhist in this game was that after whispers before nominations each day all of these new players had one minute to chat publicly and none of us players were allowed to interrupt them so they could say whatever they wanted and they did so so those were the game mechanics that were unique to this game and we can go ahead and get started with what happened.
2: I must say, it was my first time ever having to have the Buddhist ability in, and let's just say it's
1: actually nice. It was also my first time playing with either the Buddhist or the angel, actually.
0: I think I had seen the angel before. Yeah, I don't think I had played with the Buddhist before. (laughs) It is funny seeing the Buddhist and the angel in these games. I think we'll we'll address this again when we get into some of our thoughts on the game mechanics. I, I thought this was a great way for Tyler to do this. I thought, you know, it was, it was fun to play with these, but we'll talk about that more in a little bit. So some script notes. These come courtesy of Wildstar continuing to provide us with, with her analysis of all of the ongoings. Which i very much appreciate the mesophels was present the king is searching for the crown of archon which we'll get to in the lore here in just a moment crown originally came from the mesophels which was act one game three so it makes sense to have the mesophels as a part of this script the only townsfolk to return from previous scripts are noble and gossip the leech is the fourth returning demon to appear on a script it was the in-play demon in the game that introduced the idea of the Archon. None of the three Bloodline characters were on this script, which of course means that we will see them on one of the subsequent two scripts. (laughs) Wildstar broke down every revealed character that has not yet been used on a script. Uh, She broke this down because Tyler wants to show as much of the base game as possible as a part of the legacy campaign that's being run. We just know that Tyler's mentioned it a couple times throughout the course of this campaign that he's trying to show the whole game. So Wildstar has some statistics here for us. Complete list of every revealed character that's not been used in a script. 11 townsfolk, 4 outsiders, 2 minions, and 2 demons for a total of 19. For those of you keeping count, you now know the numbers. Wildstar's theorizing that we can expect to see a good number of those in the next three games. Interestingly, Puka and Goblin have not yet appeared, and those are two characters that Tyler mentioned would have been In the second game, had Evil failed to keep the little monster alive for three-plus days or kill three-plus townsfolk?
2: Oh, that's very nice to know.
1: I do hope Goblin shows up in the future. It is my favorite character.
2: Or the Goblin.
0: I don't know if Goblin and Little Monster would be included in that 19. Tyler has talked about trying to include all of the base game. I don't know that you would consider Little Monster and Goblin the base game. Because that's correct. Neither of them are uh, even the Kickstarter roles, so we won't see either of those roles in a physical or retail copy of the game until the expansions are eventually released. And there's no way, obviously, that Tyler could have all of the expansion roles as part of this campaign. So I don't know that it's necessary to include those in order to meet the criteria of covering as much of the base game as possible.
1: Yeah, but I just want to see a goblin because I'm biased. <laughs>
2: Fair enough. Uh this message has been brought to you by the Kill All Saints, Kill All Goblins, and Kill All Boom Dandies Committee.
0: Yeah, as a person who draws those tokens out of the bag, especially a Saint token, I'm not a big fan of this Kill All Club, and <laughs> I would rather that this meta goes away. <laughs> but uh in any case, I I know that there's a group of players, Madeline, you're one of them, that seem to like that that strategy. Yes. So be it.
1: Don't forget the hashtag vote all cults.
2: Yes.
0: I'm also of the opinion vote no cults until you can trust both of the neighbors. As exemplified (laughs) in a previous game of the legacy campaign, trusting to vote on a cult is not always a good idea. And as exemplified through another previous legacy campaign, sometimes the cult leader can really cause some chaos during the game. And I don't know how I feel about the cult leader anymore as a result of these legacy games. (laughs)
1: And as exemplified by this chat, there are players of very different strategy and playstyles. Yep.
0: Let's jump into some of the lore that was introduced as a part of this game. I'm going to first play a clip from Tyler giving the prologue of the game that we're about to play.
3: The Civil War ended with a reconciliation between brothers. One believed that the worship of these creatures as god was sacrilege and that the houses had gone astray while the other, having been a storm warden, knew that pandemonium was a well of power. One brother, Luke, having rallied the Anolni loyalists to kill the undead monster in their midst, lost hope when he who comes loomed over them all. It was in this moment that his brother Durant offered a compromise to save their lives and cement the power of Luff. Durant turned on his own master and aligned with the hags of the pit to direct he who comes on the duchy of Anolni. Ravenswood Bluff was saved and more. Their liege lord and all of those in Anolna were gone in the instant, and he who comes having feasted slept. Unmoored from Anolni and seeing what they could unleash from pandemonium, the empire of Luff with its seat at Ravenswood Bluff was born. Luke and Durant served as the first co-emperors. Luke rebuilt Ravenswood Bluff into a place of peace and prosperity while establishing a new Luffian rite of the church devoted to warding off the more malicious spirits of pandemonium. Durant would expand the imperial boundaries, the hags binding demons to the bodies of soldiers, criminals, and corpses to be unleashed on those stupid enough to defy his will. The March King Durant and the hearth King Luke ruled very different worlds, and for the citizens of Ravenswood Bluff, this meant a life they never would have imagined, while for the conquered it meant a hellish existence. The two emperors named junior emperors and empresses to secure succession, forming the tetrarchy. The March Lords knowing only the war machine and its inexorable campaign of conquest, man almost indistinguishable from demon, poisoning whole communities who resisted, and assassinating the heroic people who might stand in its way. The home front knows little of these horrors. Only that the war requires contributions, which they are happy to pay to stay away from the fray. The nobility of Luke was stained by the pact he had made. He knew what Durant was, but he looked around him at his beautiful children in his beautiful home, and he made his peace. Perhaps it was this blight at the root that affects Ravenswood Bluff now, or perhaps it was just short memories and myopic vision. 200 years can change a great deal, and while some members of the church remain vigilant, the imperial city has raised wonders into the sky to surround the great clock tower where spirit agents and the wealthy even employ bound spirit servants in their homes. The hearth king of today has no interest in ruling and has has instead spent his twilight years searching for a myth, the crown of Archon. When his children visit him, he commands searches in the caves, in the beach, in the cairns, perhaps the pits themselves. The heirs humor him as much as they can, but they have no mind to upset the hags or dishonor the dead. Now the old man is ranting to breach the great clock tower, leaving the heirs to believe that their father will succumb to his dementia or they can provide him with a more merciful end. Today, the morning bustle of the seat of governance in the bluff has been turned upside down when the eviscerated remains of one of the, to- the tome keepers summoned by the emperor is found impaled upon the hands of the clock tower. Panic has seized the city and only the heirs can check mob rule.
0: As this introduction states pretty clearly, this is now a story about the good and evil twin one from the last game. This is repeated throughout this; uh, that it is very clearly a, a nod to that. We're we're talking about the characters of Luke and Durant, which is a not so subtle way of saying Duke and Laurent <laughs> uh, <laughs> that were the two twins in Game Six the end of Act Two. I thought I thought it was really clever to use the names. It's very obvious to everybody exactly who you're referring to. There's been some discussion amongst the Legacy players about this sort of thing. And uh, my headcanon on this is that It doesn't really make sense to take the narrative at the beginning of this and have said Duke and Laurent specifically, because Duke in this case, and if if there wasn't a scheduling issue, uh, Laurent would still be a player in this game, and there's been a passage of time. So the players that are participating in the game that's happening as a part of the stream are not the same characters that they were in the previous game. So it makes sense to sort of Give the nod. We're talking about these people, but we're talking about different names uh, because a passage of time occurred. So us as players who jump into this game, we are representing new characters and we as players are telling a new story. So the fact that we played characters in a previous story is irrelevant. We're now telling a new story. And I think this was a nice way to do that. Another fun way to perceive this is it's a passage of time that stories get told through generations, as, as is later talked about in this 200 years of past. So perhaps the names just got messed up over 200 years because people were passing down stories about <laughs> these, these fabled uh, beings and their names got changed over the years. And so, uh, so I, I think that's another interpretation. I
1: like
2: that idea. <laughs>
0: so this introduction refers to the fact, of course, that uh, Laurent got the Zambul killed and there's a line in here that after getting the Zambul killed he lost hope with he who comes looming over him. Uh, Durant turned on his own master and aligned with the hags of the pit to direct he who comes on the duchy of Anolni. Ravenswood Bluff was saved and more. So I'm still confused. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on this, on what He Who Comes is. I I had some back and forth with Wildstar in our notes here. He Who Comes is not the Leviathan. So we had a Zombul and a Leviathan. He Who Comes is after the game, some being that comes in. The evil twin character, Durant, used He Who Comes to revolt with the group of people that our traveling band of misfits, or whatever you want to call us, originated from. So we go, at the very start of the Legacy Campaign, we go on an expedition to find Ravenswood Bluff. At the end of game six, there's this big battle. The twins happen. There's a there's a Leviathan. There's a Zombul. We defeat the Zombul Leviathan. And the evil twin takes he who comes and turns them on the group that we had originally left, like, more than 50 years ago. And now it's just us. That, that's what I got from this. I don't know who He Who Comes with
2: is, though. I hope it's the little monster from game one that would just be a beautiful bow to tie this all together. That's like, a possibility.
1: I definitely thought that He Who Comes was the Leviathan this whole time, but you're right that, that this current lore kind of turns us away from that and that He Who Comes is, is something else now.
0: Yeah, I thought it was Leviathan <laughs> too. I thought that that would have made the most sense. I don't know. I, I I don't think it's clear. I think I think that's a good idea, Madeline. That that it's actually the little monster. I don't know how you personify like the little monster would still be little if it's the same demon. So like how how would you narratively tie he who comes back to the little monster?
2: Honestly, like if you give he who comes a name and says something like "What used to be such a young spirit has grown over the centuries has become one of the most powerful forces in the spiritual realm." I don't know.
0: Right, so would it be a demon that's in the game?
2: You know what? I wouldn't know. It could be, or could be something totally homebrew for this um, campaign.
0: When we were first starting through all of this, we were joking that the little monster was going to grow up through all of the games that we're playing. And it kind of made sense that this was all building to a Leviathan, that the little monster just gets bigger and bigger. Like maybe you have a a Nodashi or a leech in the middle, and then at the end you have a Leviathan. I don't think that's the case. At least it's not presented to be the case as a part of the narrative that we've gotten so far, and we've already had a Leviathan. So yeah, I don't know what... You would personify he who comes as if it was a demon that appears on a future script
2: perhaps uh the al might be an interesting one i don't know
1: i kind of like the idea of a shabaloth personally Ooh.
0: <laughs> the little monster grows into a shabaloth yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the sh- shabaloth actually it's rooted in cthulhu right uh yes i,
1: I think so yeah
0: okay that works tentacles and weirdness
1: all consuming
0: it's unclear what he who comes refers to, it is clear the brothers used it to attack the place we came from and that it was apparently neither of the demons from the previous game. So as the story goes on, the twins become rulers. And it's also pretty clear the twins don't see eye to eye on everything. They each provide sort of their own balance on the town that's that's getting built. So one of them is sort of this peace, prosperity and religion. The other one is this war and I think the two of those things are, in many interpretations, necessary to sort of create a a functioning society. You have to have sort of that peace and and economy and such. Perhaps religion in order to create just a governing body in in a society. Having an element of war, or at least like an army, uh, gives you a sense of security oftentimes. A safety net so that you don't need to worry about something attacking uh, your, your happy little village. And so I think that what's being represented here is that the twins are this juxtaposition, this balance of uh, safety and security for the town. Uh, both become sort of necessary in order to create a functioning society even though they have differences.
2: I also like a little subtle nod. When we were, Duke and I originally heard like the flavor text for uh, Stormwarden, we thought we were just going to be like re- religious um, authoritarian, which is very fun to roleplay as. Not necessarily fun to deal with in real life, but that's just my hot take. Anyway, it's very interesting because Luke takes on the religious aspect that we've kind of gathered from it. Well, Daran takes the more of the uh, iron fist that d- deals out the punishment. It also suggests like that they're not quite as different as it would imply, despite being different alignments. They have similar values. It's a wonder like how did they split?
0: Uh, that is interesting. I think the assignment of uh personalities that tyler gave here was more of just a reference to the good and evil twin the good twin would be sort of this peace prosperity and religion and then the evil twin would be the war Um, it's also fun if you think about the people who were put in those two roles uh duke is uh <laughs> duke actively serves in a military uh so it kind of makes sense that you assign this uh this military role to duke you're right though madeline that's sort of an inconsistency in the narrative i wonder if tyler had th- thought that far ahead. Uh, I don't know that, you know, going into an assignment of narrative for Stormwarden, Tyler had already planned that Duke was gonna be a part of a twin pair in game six. Um, So that could just be an inconsistency (laughs) in the narrative. It could also be sort of reconcile that by thinking back to what I was saying previously about how we are, for each game that passes, we are new characters in this overarching story. So the place that we as, as human beings on earth or whatever um, serve is not, we, we are actors telling a story. So we potentially sit in a different role. And maybe that helps reconcile that, that can, inconsistency on the narrative that, that you're picking up on. Um, that you know Duke had played his part in a previous game. And for this game, he's playing a different part. So Tyler goes on to say, the two emperors named junior emperors and empresses to secure succession forming the tetrarchy the march lords knowing only the war machine and its inexorable campaign of conquest man almost indistinguishable from demon poisoning whole communities who resisted and assassinating the heroic people who might stand in the way the home front knows little of these horrors only the war requires contributions which they are happy to pay to stay away from the fray Uh, so what this line is introducing is the war deck mechanic it explains why players are given the option throughout the game to make a contribution towards the deck. I I summarized this at the beginning, but the contributions that can be made are you could choose as a dead player to give up your vote token, uh, or as a group, you can choose not to execute for one round. Either one of those contributes to the war effort. Uh, The contribution essentially means that if a king or a queen in particular get drawn, the negative effect of that card is dismissed. The card still stays as a part of the deck, it just gets put on the bottom, uh, but the effect of that card doesn't happen.
1: I do think it's worth noting here that there was a Vortox on the script, and therefore the choice of not executing to be a contribution towards the war effort was very, very risky, at least early in the game before there was any ideas of what Demon might be in play.
0: Yeah, so... The only thing that was ever done during the game was sacrificing a vote token. I think throughout the course of the game that we played, it was clear at some point that a Vortox wasn't in play, but the town just never even really considered that option. And at the beginning, you're not going to consider it because as you're pointing out, a Vortox is on the script. Um, I'm thinking about a line that's in here that it's poisoning whole communities who resisted and assassinating the heroic people who might stand in its way. Thinking about those two lines, poisoning whole communities, assassinating heroic people. If a king is drawn, it's a casualty of war. A death happens at night. If a queen is drawn, it's a fog of war. A player is drunk for the rest of the game. So the two negative effects of the deck are a death happens at night, and a player is drunk for the rest of the game. And the lore here says poisoning whole communities and assassinating the heroic people. So perhaps this line of lore is just basically referencing the effects of the deck, which I think is further shown through the next line, that community knows only that the war requires contributions, which they're happy to pay to stay away from the fray. So the war is this poisoning and assassinating, and contributions stay away from it. So I think that this line is referencing the fact that you stop the effects of those two cards.
2: Also could be a subtle Tyler revealing the minion. We had a Poisoner and an Assassin.
1: I mean, they kind of seem to be uh, referencing each other, right? The minions that are on the script are also what some of those cards do. um, And And yeah, they become like a a double reference, if you
2: will. Yeah, I
0: could be misreading this and Tyler is just stating what the two minions in the game
2: are. I did some research on the word tetrarchy and I got into researching uh, the Diocletian tetrarchy. And I've noticed a lot of parallels or things that seem very, very close. So, So Diocletian was an emperor in Rome. His father was either the scribe or the emancipated slave of Senator Anolinus. Very familiar name, hmm. So Diocletian was noticing at the time that there was a lot of political instability. There was a lot of assassinations, uh, generals high in power and trying to take over, and it was like a dog-eat-dog political world. In order to take care of such a large empire that's just a huge power struggle, he thought to uh, divide the land into the West and the East empires, and of course, therefore need people to rule each side. And then it got further divided into fours, hence tetrarchy. In the tetrarchy, uh, there's two like seniors, which are called Augusti, a singular is Augustus. They were always referred to as emperor, no matter what. Then there were the lesser, or the juniors, which are two of them. They're referred to as Caesars. They were not always referred to as emperors. It was very situational. I see the parallels because of four, and also I think perhaps our evil apprentices slash heirs, they might've been the Augusti because they had more power. Because if you think about it, given that a vote could not pass unless one of the heirs voted and they knew who the demon was, they would ultimately have more power. Another note is that this setup basically bypassed the need for Senate approval of a new emperor which had been the old status quo. And then again, as I mentioned, it prevented generals from climbing the ranks, being crazy. And it also interesting that Bejbo, the king, while it was an act of rebellion, actually would have been kind of common, trying to rally up people to take down this current setup so he could be in power. It actually works. It's very interesting just how close this is to the writing.
0: Some good observations, Madeline. Yeah, I think so too. So as as Tyler goes on here, uh, he's implying that Luke is happy with his life, even if his brother is doing things that he doesn't approve of. Rather than fighting him, uh, he sits back and lets the situation potentially get out of hand. Uh, that's my interpretation of it. But in any case, he's not he's not necessarily stopping his brother from building up war and, you know, potentially creating more conflict. There's a passage of 200 years, and then there's a talk about spirit servants and such in the town.
1: We've heard about spirits before, right? In the previous game, there were the pit hags who communed with spirits in order to unleash a demon, which was the Zambul, and there was reference of... Um, There's a line Tyler had said in the previous game's prologue about, you know, by day flesh rules, by night spirit. So we have this really interesting kind of catch-all term that we determined it was a bit more of a catch-all term that spirit can kind of refer to demons and minions and possibly also even the fabled here. So the the angel and the buddhist might be what's being referenced as well. Um oh, Wildstar had an interesting point here that the Masephalius is also considered one of the spirits of pandemonium. So, like my initial thought was oh spirit is referring to the demons, but bound spirit servants sounds more like minions and we do know that Masephalius has been classified as a spirit, so it's it is a uh, very broad term, it seems. I also,
2: just looking at it from a multiculturalism perspective, that it, it could also suggest that there's more kind of entities in the spiritual realm from other religious groups. And the society, even though there is an established church, there's perhaps be more religions, as evidenced by the Buddhists, which a reference to a real world religion.
1: I think that interpretation makes as well yeah
0: i like the idea that it's refer- just referring to the angel but that's way too simple for tyler so i think uh i think the three of you are are on to some a little bit better than my simplistic view on this i mean
1: there's nothing wrong with something being fairly straightforward so
0: yeah you could just be saying there's an angel or a set of angels in this game guys that's that's all he's trying to say here there's a line here about the crown of archon or more specifically tyler says the hearth king of today has no interest in ruling and has instead spent his twilight years searching for a myth, the crown of Archon. So, this is Wildstar's favorite line of lore. So, I'm just gonna quote Wildstar here. The crown was buried with King Gideon. It was given and potentially created by Mesephiles and gives great power over both people and the spirits of Pandemonium. It's a very good thing to have. It's what Wildstar
1: says. Well, it's a very powerful thing to have. I'm not I'm not entirely sure about what uh, the ultimate effect of it would be. But if you're if you're looking for power, then yes, it is definitely a good thing to have. So the next bit of lore is that the, the Hearth King is is just becoming more or less obsessed with with finding this crown of Archon to the point where it's considered succumbing to dementia. Um, right? He's sending out his heirs to find them wherever possible. Possible, So the caves, the fiech, the cairns, and uh, perhaps even the pits themselves where we know the hags live. And the last bit of this line is they can provide him with a more merciful end, which to me kind of sounds like they're talking about an assassination, a more merciful end being to um, euthanize him to put it in a uh, euphemistic way, so uh, to me, that's another kind of nod towards the assassin that's on the script and ended up being in play mm. as well.
0: I wonder if that's one of those hidden, hidden legacy mechanics that modifies a future script. Ooh, maybe. If the assassin kills a particular character, then doesn't necessarily matter because the assassin didn't kill anyone. Get
2: right, friend. We love you.
0: <laughs> so as we come to a conclusion, there's a line in here that I like as Tyler to finish this line with. I, I like how this ends here. Saying, you know, all of this is happening, but today when the eviscerated remains of one of the town's keepers summoned by the emperor is found impaled on the hands of the clock tower, panic has seized the city and only the heirs can check mob rule. Uh, So this line is referencing the fact that the heirs need to vote on executions in order for them to pass. It's a special rule that gets announced here. I also like that it's surprising to all of these people that someone is impaled on the hands of the clock tower because that seems completely normal to me, that someone would be impaled on the hands of the clock tower. You might as well just leave the corpse up there because it's going to happen as soon as you take the corpse down. It's very common, but it seems like they've gone 200 years without that happening. So I guess things have been going pretty good for 200 years and now suddenly a demon has appeared. That was was my interpretation of how this ended here. I am curious what caused the demon to reappear. Uh, Wildstar pointed out that there's literal demons fighting the wars. At the start of day one, that suggested, and then we lost control of one. So maybe it's just you know things have been under control for 200 years, but now we've suddenly lost control of a demon again, and that's why we're we're back into this cycle of people on the clock tower. Perhaps what triggered it, I I kind of wish that there was something else that happened. You know, the 200 years of no no impaling on the clock tower was broken by by something else. Um than just we lost control of a demon. Uh so Wildstar noted that at the start of day three, we lost respect for the heirs because of the line with the news of all the violent goings on in town. There's been so much unrest that the heirs no longer have the respect of the people. As much as they once did, the angel has been lifted. And that's when the fabled character, the angel, was removed from the game. We still needed to use the heirs in order to pass a vote on an execution, but the angel was no longer in play. So I think the last bit of narrative that exists or last bit of lore that exists as a part of this game is just simply that, that we lost respect of the heirs. So we know going out of this that they're they're not going to have the same significance that they had at the beginning of this. Our government still holds enough power to continue on in these external wars as the war mechanic persists. And Wildstar notes that Bejbo might have been on to something. The government will be destabilized and people may start wanting to fight back. Uh, And I think we'll get back to that as we talk about a potential theory for future games that a revolutionary may appear. Normally at this point we cover the game summary. Uh, The reason why we do this is so that some of our discussion on the mechanics makes sense. I think we can have a discussion on some of these mechanics without covering what happened during the game. Running the play-by-play here would just be redundant. I don't think the game in particular had an application of these mechanics that matter enough to differentiate, like, here's how we applied them. I think we could just have a general discussion about these mechanics. I thought this was a really clever way to include the angel and the Buddhist. Tyler, as we previously pointed out, is trying to include all of the base mechanics as a part of this legacy campaign. How exactly he was going to include an angel and a Buddhist was not clear because these are these are fabled characters that are explicitly designed to help usher in new players to the game. and. These streams have very experienced players, so how do you include it? I thought this was a great way to include it. I had a lot of fun with these. They didn't need to change much at all. I think the one change that was made to The Buddhist is just simply to support the fact that this is streaming to a live audience, and it makes it a little bit more interesting for the live audience. But in general, you didn't really have to make any changes to these fabled characters. They did their job perfectly in this and they were fun to include as a part of this game absolutely agree it was fun having new players in the game and having them break our meta uh and this is where covering you know aspects of the game would potentially be interesting so i'll I'll call out a couple things but i want to first say that each of the four players that joined our game had a significant impact on what happened during this game and that's really cool i think that's what tyler wanted and like as a player who is participating in this, I love seeing that. I, I hope that all of these four people had fun playing the game. I mean, we, like we've talked about a lot on this podcast, we're here to have fun. We're here to enjoy a game. And, you know, when you're when you're having a new player join into Clock Tower, it can be intimidating. Hopefully, you know, the people that joined this had fun. If they did, then I think that just shows the great design of the Angel and the Buddhist because it certainly helped them have more a, of a significant part of, of this stream and of this game. So... Talk about some of the things that happened. Will was the Mezephalese in the game. He was an apprentice Mezephalese. He had a plan for how he was going to use that word. He never gave, he never actually like passed it off to someone in a way that that person could become evil, but it didn't matter because Will was bluffing tea lady and controlled the executions for the first like half of the game. He got both of his neighbors killed and then also got one of the good travelers killed, All just to test the tea lady claim. So it didn't matter that, you know, a a player didn't turn evil because holy hell I think Will had more effect on this game than anybody else like uh, very good plays by someone who's unfamiliar with the game Pepper got Duke trusted uh, being a washerwoman confirming the gossip that controlled the conversation about our demon type and how deaths were happening for a large portion of the game the fact that a gossip was confirmed there I I think perhaps helped the evil team a little bit more than the good team we could talk about that more in detail if, if you guys disagree but in any case it still had an effect on the game it controlled a part of the conversation And that's great. Aaron had the innkeeper and was focused on just trying to drunk evil players, which is a brand new meta, I think, for the stream. We we never see that meta. And Aaron took out a minion ability, like just made the assassin have no value on the game. Uh, So then it's just, you know, an evil player just trying to cause chaos is, is the only thing left there. And then John, not knowing how to out as an evil traveler to the demon uh, made for an entertaining end to the game because evil team didn't know john was evil and had a very different meta on how to use the witch that kept the witch hidden and still caused a death during the day using the witch's ability, which ultimately like without that death, it made up for the fact that the assassin lost their ability without that death. I think it would have been a more complicated end of the game for the evil team. So I would say all four of these brand new players had a very significant impact on the game,
1: which I think is a really great showing of, you know, the angel and the Buddhist and and what they were in the game for was to allow these new players to, to have enough time to talk, And and to stay around to have these massive impacts on the game
2: It was great seeing new players and like I'm glad they were so great at like breaking out of their initial shells, Like in introductions and then stealing the show in the best way possible Just shout out to all the new players y'all did great
0: So the other big legacy mechanic in this game was the war deck. I'm going to hold off really much judgment on this because I don't think we've seen it enough, but I'll talk about it in theory, my thoughts on like approaching this. I don't think the deck actually had much impact on this particular game, although I don't think that's necessarily gonna be true long-term. The reason why I say that is because the only negative card that we saw was the queen, which made one player drunk for the rest of the game the storytellers made a great decision picking the juggler because the juggler was going to be the biggest problem for the evil team at that moment. The evil team knew who the juggler was and knew that the juggler was a problem. So we used the poisoner that night to poison the juggler. So it didn't actually matter that a queen was drawn there. So far, the deck really hasn't had any impact on the game. You know, We had a long discussion about fairness and balance in the last podcast. So see previous discussion about all of that clearly it wasn't imbalanced to make a player (laughs) jump like the evil team could have just done that so you know i i don't think that we've seen any issues as a part of this you know we we've got more to say about this but before before we get into some of the details here i what i really like about this is that i've actually felt like most of this legacy campaign so far has felt more like a role-playing campaign than what i traditionally think of as a tabletop legacy campaign something like pandemics legacy or risk legacy i feel like this war deck is the first really really true legacy mechanic just because it's very apparent to us as players how our decisions and how the actions of this game are i guess it isn't necessarily our decisions but in any case how the actions of this game are directly impacting subsequent games Uh, and like a lot of that is just behind the scenes hidden i'm sure when it's all over you know like there'll be great examples that counterpoint what i'm talking about right now but so far it's been very opaque to us we haven't been able to see the effect of that whereas like right now we know what this deck composition is going into the Next game and when you're playing pandemic legacy and you know that you've got this like terrible card in the deck because of something that happened during a previous game you know that that like effect is there so i really like that this like deck can spin out of control over the next few games and just cause complete chaos I think that that's pretty cool. Like you go into each game knowing the balance of the stack and as things happen, you think like, oh God, this is going to hurt us even more the next game. So I think that's all really cool. Yeah, and then you also
1: have um, the potential impact. You had one player, I believe it was just one player who gave up their ghost vote this game in order to act as a contribution to the war effort. You might see more of that in future games and, and that can ultimately have, you know, even just one person can have a big impact when it comes to the end game scenario
2: i do wonder like people broke the buddhist thing and it's like i wonder if we get a consequence for Whoever did it, like Hell's librarian or something.
1: Yeah, it was it was pretty easy um, during the playtest as well to just sort of accidentally forget that the Buddhist was in play, right? Because you know you get into the game and you have all these theories about what's going on, and and uh, yeah, it's it's easy to just slip
0: up there. There was some discussion before the game started. Fabled characters are characters that are in the game, right? And they can be impacted by tokens that players have. Some of the players were joking about Cordier drunking the Buddhist.
1: Oh, that's rude.
0: Uh, (laughs) It would be rude. They were joking about it. I don't think anyone wanted to seriously do it. But we were discussing whether that would be allowed or not. And how you could confirm the Cordier by talking during the Buddhist time. So the courtier could drunk the Buddhist, and then we as players could just talk during the time, and if the storyteller doesn't tell us we're cheating, then the courtier is confirmed. Uh, Obviously, none of the players in this game would actually do that. It was just an interaction that was being discussed. That was obviously a terrible idea. You should never do that. (laughs) <laughs> but I figured I'd bring it up here because they are, you know, you, you could in theory, like per the rules of the game, I think you could do that. I'm curious how the designers would feel about that sort of thing. I suspect that drunken an ability like that, because they're not allowed to hard confirm anyone, I suspect that they just would not tell you whether you're cheating or not. It's sort of like the, it's not an official jinx, but the poisoner cannot poison the butler. There's just no effect when the poisoner selects the butler. It's, it's always, even if you know that you're drunk or poisoned, it's always cheating for the butler to raise their hand out of turn. Wildstar had some thoughts that we've seen almost every Fabled. few we haven't seen uh, include Fiddler. And so the war deck is progressing a war tracker. When there's a loss on the War Tracker, it has some effects that we don't yet know. And so Wildstar was theorizing that maybe when the War Tracker gets to a certain number, it could trigger the Fiddler, which ends the game early. This could also happen in the Act 3 finale. If you think that we're going to see all of the fabled characters, it would be interesting to see how Fiddler gets forced into this. And the War Tracker does seem like a good way to do that. Yeah, I
1: think Fiddler is kind of maybe one of the more awkward ones to sort of figure out how would you do this in a way that still makes a a game interesting and fun and fair to watch all the way through to the end.
0: Wildster points out that we might still see some version of the revolutionary at some point. If Tyler went through all of this trouble to include the Buddhist and the angel in this game, it definitely seems reasonable that we're going to see a revolutionary at some point. How he implements that, I don't think that we can begin to theorize. The stream track record with the revolutionary in in weird and interesting ways uh, has been complicated. And so how Tyler chooses to include that in legacy game uh, will be uh, fun to observe. It definitely feels like we're going to see it at some point just because of how much effort has been put in for the rest of them. But I I can't begin to imagine how you would include that.
1: The more straightforward way of including revolutionary in a way that makes sense here is to do revolutionary pairs, which have been seen on the stream before. And it's worth noting that that is absolutely not the intent of a revolutionary pair, right? You're su- you're not really supposed to have like a whole game where everybody is a revolutionary pair and have fun with that and everybody knows who all the pairs are, right? It's an accessibility fable that is meant to allow certain people to play the game if they would otherwise not be able to, to give them somebody that they can trust and rely on to help them through the game. So uh, I do believe that if it is included, it is going to be included in the way that we've seen on the before, which is not the intent of it, but is certainly an interesting way of running the revolutionary.
0: I think that just because that has been complicated in the past, that Tyler may look at the intent of the role and realize that what we're trying to do is showcase all of the mechanics through this legacy campaign that are a part of the game. And you make up a great point about accessibility. Maybe we see... Maybe we see this brought into the game in that way rather than the super fun way that we've seen that everybody's in a revolutionary pair. So I almost feel, listening to you explain this, Nivian, I almost feel the opposite. I feel like it's more likely to see it in, um, in the way that it was originally designed to be rather than the... Crazy chaos! Everybody's in a revolutionary pair.
1: Yeah, that's a fair point.
0: That being said, you're a playtester, so you uh, you may have prior knowledge of this that I don't yet have. But and I I would be happy to eat these words just because I think it would be really fun to see a bunch of revolutionary <laughs> pairs.
1: Um, yeah and we've definitely had a bit of back and forth about what the the potential composition would be if they if it is a game of revolutionary pairs. Wildstar thinks that there might be somewhere between one through three revolutionary pairs, um, probably you know on the lower end so maybe not the entire game. Uh, that made me think that maybe there's going to be a callback to, the the houses so we might have the houses being paired but not as a revolutionary pair but just back in their houses basically versus revolutionary pairs among the common folk which is kind of what it feels like some of the game might be building towards is is right a revolution of of the the common folk against all of these wealthy people who are sending them out to war and and all of that but uh, Wildstar has a thought that if there's more than one revolutionary pair it's going to be the houses being paired back together because we've had basically the the houses have gone astray right they've they've sort of been disbanded or fallen apart a bit but at the same time there is still lineage you know one of the brothers being referenced as being a storm warden right so it's possible that even though the houses themselves have kind of fallen a bit that they are still keeping their family ties. Um, so it makes sense that we might have the houses coming back together in forms of revolutionary pairs as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's the notes that we have for what might be coming up next in future theories here. I'm
1: looking forward to seeing how this war goes. Yep, it's going to be a war, I hope. Or not, I don't know.
0: We're definitely in a war, Madeline. <laughs> I don't know if you missed that, but there's a deck and everything. <laughs> <laughs>
2: wait wait we're in a war
0: yeah (laughs) the legacy streams will be back this sunday uh, to feature game eight of the 10 game campaign for blood on the clock tower legacy i unfortunately will not be in this game it'll be the one legacy game that i miss uh the podcast will still be here the following week i will still have a regular slew of guests i'm just going to be a spectator talking about the game that i watched rather than be an active participant but we'll still break down what happens on this upcoming sunday game so thank you to madeline and avian for joining us here uh, as as a part of the discussion about what happened during game seven really appreciate all of the insight it was great having you guys
1: it was great being here thanks for having us (laughs) thanks
0: that's it for this episode of legacy on the clock tower see you guys
3: bye ciao